If you have your Bible uh, with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to, uh, we are in Esther chapter 8 this morning. In Esther chapter 8, that's where we're going to be uh, this morning, continuing our journey through this uh, brief, but I would say really, I don't know if I realized this uh, before we started it quite as much as I feel it now, just how compelling uh, this little book from the Old Testament is. Uh, dating This book dates about 500 years uh, before the birth of Jesus, and, and we're almost at the end of it, uh, but today we're in Esther chapter 8. So stand with me, if you will, and let's set our hearts to receive God's Word to us this morning. Uh, this is Esther 8, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through the first eight, uh, eight verses here. On that day... King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us. And, and we just sang a prayer. This is uh, the 26th of each month is a day of prayer for us. Today is February 26th, and Lord, we just sang a prayer to you, a very repetitive prayer, pleading with you uh, to speak what is true. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guard me in these moments, that you would guard our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears to receive your word, your true word to us this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Given a little time um, and, and just a, a, just a little perspective, uh, most of us come to understand that the world that the world is a mess, right? 
Like that's sort of the witness of history. And that's really like the cloud that sort of hangs over everything and everyone. It's just that things are a mess. And our, and our sort of, I don't know that our cultural response to this has been all that healthy. And our sort of cancel culture response, what we do now is we try to, we try to simply erase all, all signs of failure. And so what we do and this has been proven in, in my week. I don't know that I've had a conversation. I know I have not gone a day all week without hearing something about a trial taking place in Hampton County. I mean, I'd, it's impossible to escape this story. If you've somehow managed to do that up to this point, I apologize for now giving you the urge to Google Hampton County crime. I, I just, but it, it, it's, it, it's, it's just every day we... And so here's what we do. We, we tend to sensationalize the mess in the present and then sanitize the mess of the past. That's what we tend to do. We sensationalize the mess in the present and we sanitize the mess of the past. And if we aren't careful, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to end up erasing the ability to learn from our mistakes. Like taking a broader look at this, um, one theologian, his, his name is Michael Horton, he's made the statement, this, this, the, the first part's not complicated, he goes, man, history is complicated, right? It is, it just is. If you study history, if you read history, you study our forefathers, you study the history of our nation, history of the world, even the history of the Jewish people going through, uh, through time, you realize it is complicated. But he says this, and this is what I want you to, this is kind of why I'm sharing it. He says it simultaneously, so history simultaneously reminds us of God's common grace and human perversity. You've got these two things there in history always acting sort of in tension. You've got common grace and human perversity. Well, what we're going to contend today in Esther 8 is that it's God's grace, ultimately, that changes everything. The title of this sermon is The World Turned Upside Down. What we want to see in this is how the grace of God really does, for lack of better words, um, it turns the world upside down. And Esther 8 really reinforces this for it. We see it. We see the brokenness. We see that in there. There's pain. There's angst. We see the... But we also see the grace. And the fact is, as we, as we continue here, is that the Lord only needs... Here's what I want you to take away. I'll give it to you right now. <laughs> is that the Lord, it only takes just a moment for the Lord to change everything. It takes just a moment for the Lord to turn everything upside down. And we see that here in verse 1, is that everything so far, every pattern, every rhythm, and every cadence of the story so far is turned upside down. So look at that with us. All it takes is just three words to set the tone. Those first three words, it says, on that day. Now, some of you, if you haven't been here with us, we've been the way we do this, we just go straight through books of the Bible. So we are in Esther chapter 8. That means last week, good guess, we were in Esther chapter 7, all right? Because that's the way we tend to do things. Not just because we're not very creative people, but also because we believe God gave us His Word in an order, and we want to do what we can uh, to follow that. It keeps us from avoiding uh, difficult texts. It keeps us from avoiding difficult topics. 
And, and it keeps me from just standing up here and telling you what I want to say every week. And so on that day, that's the same day, I'll give you a little bit of a rehash, the same day as Esther's second feast, it's the same day that Haman was called out for his genocidal project against the Jews, it's the same day, the same day that Haman was hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. It's on that day. One of the things we tell our athletes all the time, and something I tell my kids anytime they're in some sort of activity with a clock or a timer, uh, it's that it's not, you'll know this, right? It's not over till what? Till it's over, right? It's not over until it's over. So if we are down eight with one second on the clock, in my mind, we're throwing a touchdown and getting a two-point conversion, and we're going to add some more time back to the clock. That's just the way we teach our athletes to think. That's the way I want my kids to think, is it is not over until it's over. As long as there is a second on the clock and breath in our lungs, we have reason to hope. That goes into our verse of the year, right? It doesn't rejoice in hope, right? We want to be a people of hope. That's basically our state motto, right? Isn't it? Dumb Spiro Sparrow. While I breathe, I hope. And so God, all right, there in the wreckage that is Esther chapter 8, not far away from it all, not, not sitting off in the distance, not up in his throne, just kind of watching the show play out while he's eating his popcorn, right? He's not watching the Hampton County trial. That's not what's happening but present in it, present in the ruin of this sin-ravaged world. God is here in the darkness. He's not done working quite yet. And so here's what it says. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You see, that's the turn right there. That's the 180 degree reversal from everything that we have seen set up to this point. Haman is gone, the enemy of the Jews is gone, and Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew gets all his stuff. He gets his place, he gets his position, and he gets his power. It is a complete and total reversal. And all of this has essentially come through a series of events that began with a sleepless night for King Ahasuerus. And so Esther and Mordecai receive this reward, and there's a temptation there to stop. But it's not over. You see, the primary issue still remains. The biggest question is still unanswered, and that's the irrevocable decree, the edict of Jewish destruction. And so it's not quite a they lived happily ever after story. That edict is still in place. The Jewish people are still on the clock. There's a date coming where their demise is sure. And Esther herself a Jew, Esther knows that. And you can, see, you can see that this has taken a toll on her. It's hard to really capture the weight of all that's happened over the last few days in her life as, as she has risked her life 
as she has stepped into the ring of Persian politics and gone toe-to-toe with a big shot like Haman. And listen, there's no denying she won the first round, all right? That scorecard is clear. The judges are all sure of that. She got that one, but the truth is she took some shots in it. She's worn down, and now the bell has just rung for round two. And here's what we want to understand. As we come to the end of this book, we're approaching the end. we got one more message in the book of Esther next week. We want to understand the portrait that the author is painting for us. And it's been there from the very beginning. It's been there ever since the opening verse of this book. It's that there are, I wanted to, this is, there it is. It's that there are two ways. That's it. There are two ways in life, two ways in history, two ways that everything plays out. There is the way of the flesh. That's the natural leaning of our hearts. That's the natural posture. That's sort of our default setting from the factory. That's the way of flesh. And then there is the way of faith. Those are the only two ways, the way of flesh and the way of faith, which is the way of Jesus. And it's these two contrasting ways. It's these two contrasting sort of postures. We, we see them both. We see, we see the way of the world and we see the way of Jesus. But, and, and this is critical for us, and it's consistent in Esther. Again, been there every step of the way. But it's that this is the tension of our reality that we find ourselves in right now. This is the tension of our reality. It's what the Bible calls the groaning of the earth. And it hangs over every single moment of life here on earth. And in that, Esther shows us a glimpse of the way of faith. So we're going to start with the good side this morning. In another sermon that may or may not have been, but definitely was written this past week, I called this the reasonable approach. That happens every once in a while. You start out to write one and you write three over the course of the week and you just hope that the last one is the one that God wanted you to give. But there's a whole other sermon one day we'll get to, all right? But this was called the reasonable approach. And reasonable doesn't mean without passion. Presbyterians are bad at passion. I want you to know that. If you just joined today, first time Presbyterian, I want you to know, please don't let us rob you of your passion and fire. Don't let us steal that. Are you young life people? I had one of our young life people who joined the church today apologize to me for not being at our class because she was serving in uh, North Carolina at a camp uh, teaching high school and middle school kids about Jesus. I was like, that is the worst reason to ever apologize ever. Do not ever come and sit with me for four hours on a Sunday morning instead of telling middle school kids about Jesus. In fact, I wish we could have just been there with you. Now, reasonable doesn't mean without passion. I have to fight my own tendency here to be too calm. That's my normal nature. Doesn't mean without passion. It doesn't mean without fire. Reasonable doesn't mean without heart. She is nothing. Esther is nothing if not passionate in this. These are her people. In truth, it's This is her life. Everything hangs in the balance right here. But she's not out of control, right? She's not in a rage. So much of what we see in the tension today is a sort of compressed rage, right? There's this two sides and everybody's kind of battling it out. And she has plenty of reason for bitterness. She has plenty of reason for animosity. But instead, right, walking in the tension... 
She's measured. She's deliberate. She's reasonable. Notice how she refers to the edict down in verse 5. Look at that. Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it please the king. I love how she reverts back to sort of court pleasantries here. She's willing to work within the cultural system. She's not willing to just throw it all away. She says, if it please the king and if I found favor in his sight, you see this posture that she's bringing. And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke what? Not the king's edict. What does she say? Revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. And listen, she's already shown her hand. She's not playing poker here, okay? She's already shown her hand. She's already fallen at his feet. She's wept. She's pleaded with him. And so her heart, it's out there on the table. She's not playing games. She's not standing on pretense. She's not standing on ceremony. She's exposed. She is vulnerable in this moment, but she's not vindictive. You see, she's still in a posture of humility with him. And she's, demonstra- and she's also demonstrating a level of wisdom and insight in this because she understands, here, she understands that he is still the king. She might not like that he's the king, but she understands that he is the king. She understands that he is the one who must ultimately act in this. And, and we'll see his response, but for now, our concern's with Esther, and it's her posture. It's a posture that has been so consistent over the course of these two days and these two feasts that she's thrown, but, but there's a definite urgency about her. And there's a scene over in Matthew 8. It's a scene in Matthew 8, and it reminds me of this one. It's a scene where a, it's a, scene where a Roman centurion uh, is seeking Jesus. A centurion is just a, it's a Roman army commander who's over a hundred Men. And we actually meet several centurions in the, in the New Testament. But, but this one comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus with a need. He comes to Jesus appealing to him. That's what it says in, in Matthew 8. He comes appealing to Jesus. That word for appealing can also be translated as he came pleading with Jesus. It's the same way that Esther is described here in chapter 8. And so he comes to Jesus and he says this. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. That's what he says. Lord, my servant is at home, paralyzed, lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. That's how he starts. And in the very next verse, the very next thing that is said, it's it's Matthew 8, 7. It's Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. He goes, I will come and heal him. I've got this servant. He is paralyzed and he's suffering terribly. Jesus goes, I'll come heal him. I will come heal him. And heal him. So we see this sort of like immediate compassion from the Lord in that, right? But then the story takes a turn. It actually goes, it goes kind of sideways a little bit. Jesus, Jesus says he's going to come and heal him. And in a twist, the centurion basically says, please don't do that. Now that's weird, right? I mean, for us, that seems like, I need you to come heal him. Jesus says, I'm going to come heal him. And he goes, please don't do that. Please don't do that. He's going, no, if it's, it's really, Jesus, it's not really worth all that trouble. And if we slow down and sort of pace ourselves in the story, we recognize that something, something is a bit off in this, right? It seems like Jesus is offering to do for you what you asked him to do, and now you're saying, don't come do 
that thing, like it's the worst argument ever, right? It just didn't make any sense. We recognize that something's a bit off. And the centurion says this, and this is where you get to the heart of it. He goes, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion is appealing to Jesus. He's pleading with Jesus from a position of understanding about Jesus. He's going, you don't need to come to my house to heal my servant. He's going, just say it. And it will be done. That's sort of the posture of Esther here. She's coming before the king like the centurion before Jesus. She's approaching his throne. She's pleading with him because he has the authority to revoke, to revoke that edict. And again, she's not coming in anger. She's not coming to him in a rage. She's coming to him in that posture of humility. Just like the centurion. Knowing that the one that she's talking to is the one who can set her people free, knowing that he is the one who can liberate them. The only question is, is whether he has the character to do it. And this is where we get a glimpse of the way of the flesh. It's there in verse 7. Here's what it says. I want to read that again for you. It says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. By the way, that is not why he hanged Haman. Okay, so our boy is comfortable comfortable kind of twisting the story in his benefit. He hanged Haman because Haman made a play for Esther in his mind. That's why he he hanged Haman. It wasn't so some more altruism, right? So he's a liar. Anyway, (laughs) I don't like this king. I don't like Haman. I don't like Ahasuerus. He's that guy. He will just... Anyway... He says this, but you, but you, this is what the king says, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. It feels like we've heard that as a chorus throughout this book, right? That if it's sealed with the king's ring, it cannot be revoked. And so here's what it is. Esther makes her appeal and the king, at le- I mean, I guess if there's one redeeming quality about this guy, at least he's consistent. He doesn't want to show weakness. He doesn't want to admit his error. His response is essentially, you handle it. That's basically his response. You handle it. He gives permission to Esther and Mordecai to write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. He's going, do what you want, just leave me out of it. There's also a sense, don't you get a sense there, there's also like a, haven't I done enough for you people? Like you're the queen. I've made you the queen. I've I've given this guy my signet ring. I've given him the fancy position in the kingdom. Will you never be satisfied? That's kind of what he seems to be saying. When is it enough? But underneath all that, there's something running running there. He fears losing his status. He fears losing control. And so ultimately, he does not revoke the previous edict. He just continues to lean into that tradition that the words of the king cannot be revoked. And so at some point, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with the fallout 
of the prideful leader. We have to deal with that. We have to deal with the fallout of a prideful leader because prom, I promise you there is a fallout. That's, that's what the whole dismissive posture represents. That's what it points to. Esther comes before the king in the spirit of humility. She comes with, with a meekness to her, a gentleness to her. And it's in that posture of meekness, that sort of self-abasement, that we're reminded of, obviously reminded of, our Savior. And we could come back to this passage every week, and we used it this morning in our call to worship. And I told you before we did the call to worship that I was going to come back to this passage. That's what Paul recounts for us from Philippians 2. He's looking back at the life of Jesus. He's making an application of that life of Jesus to the life of Jesus' followers, to his disciples. He's saying, essentially what he's saying is this is the way of faith. This is what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. So he starts out there in Philippians 2. Here's what he does. He says this. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is what he's doing to the church. He's giving them an appeal for unity. Most of us have walked the earth long enough to know why Paul is pressing in on that, right? We know how easy it is to become divided. If there's anything that human beings are really, really good at, it's splitting up into our comfort zones, right? It's dividing ourselves into our little categories. It's so easy for us to become splintered and fragmented in our relationships. And so what he does, and this is the story of the redeemed, is he points us, he points us squarely at Jesus. That's always his response. And by the way, it's not just his last last resort response. This is his first response. He says this. This is Philippians 2.3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, doesn't that sound like what we've seen from Esther? I mean, the past three weeks, doesn't that sound like what we've seen from Esther? She risked her life, she risked her home, she risked her family, she risked everything. For what? For the interest of others. It's what we've seen from her. She is willing to risk herself for the liberation of her people. And so it's not, it's not a mystery. <laughs> Esther is pointing us to something in her character She's pointing us to Jesus. And Paul continues, he says this. So here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He says this. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, right, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the thing. Pride has no place in the Christian life. And here's the other thing. Every one of us, every one of us came in here with some level of pride that needs to die. Pride is antithetical to the gospel. Can we just say that? 
Like it is violently anti-gospel. I wonder if we're able to hear that. Walking in the way of Jesus, following after Him in the journey of faith is a journey of emptying ourselves. It's the most counter-cultural message. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's because what Jesus proclaimed and what Jesus did is the most upside-down it's the most upside-down thing that could have ever been done. And so apart from the Spirit, the truth is the gospel doesn't make any sense. Jesus emptied himself. And he said things like this. You remember this? You'll remember some of these. He said things like, the last will be first and the first last. Try that one as a campaign slogan. Andrew, 2026. The last shall be first in the first light. You're getting zero votes, by the way. He said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember that one? He said, blessed are those who mourn. He said, blessed are the meek. He, even, he went further. He said that the meek shall inherit the earth. Think about how insane that sounds apart from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But you see, the way of Jesus, right, is the way of the cross. It's the way of self-forgetfulness. And Ahasuerus, our king here, he's operating in pride. It's his benefit. It's his comfort. It's his security. These are his great motivations. He enjoys having more than the next person, and he enjoys being more than the next person. And what pride does when we become the center of our own little universe, what it does is it forces us to act almost exclusively out of fear. It's that when self is our chief end, fear becomes our primary motivator. That's what we see with the king. And listen, he, let's just be straight. He could have revoked the law. You know that, right? I mean, we've heard it over and over again how a law of the king can't be revoked. So what does he need to do? Just revoke that law. He's the king. He can do that. He has the power. So that's why that line at the end of verse 8 drives me nuts. Like, you, like he can't do it. Sorry. That, I just really don't like him. Um, the king has, if this king has that ultimate authority like he claims, if the king has irrevocable power, he has the power to change that law. He's a walking contradiction. So it must be something else that keeps him from revoking it. It's his pride, because to change course means to admit some shortcoming. But that's precisely what Jesus calls us to do, It's to change course. That is the call of Christ. It's to change course. That was his message at the outset of his ministry over in Mark 1. It's the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Sometimes we go too soft on this. I want to confess that to you. Sometimes I have the tendency to go too soft. I don't want, to, I don't want you to get mad at me. I don't, want mean, I don't want mean emails later in the week. Hey, you said, yeah, but we all need to turn. Like the call is to every one of us to repent and believe in the gospel. I love the way Jerem Bars says this. He says, whatever our life is like before meeting Jesus, coming to him will mean repentance, turning from something else, and turning to Jesus. When that centurion came before King Jesus in Matthew 8, 
there in the town of Capernaum. He demonstrated the life of faith. He showed us what trust looks like. And Jesus said to him, this is how he finished that conversation. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the hardest things to swallow as a pastor is that hell is going to be full of beautiful people. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says that there are two ways. One leads to a table. One leads to a feast and to a wedding with Jesus and glory. And the other leads to a place of weeping. It leads to a place of gnashing teeth. Jesus finished that conversation with the centurion by saying this, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. The centurion wasn't healed, his servant was. For those of us who have life, Jesus says the same thing to us. Go, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Who are you standing in the gap for right now, today? Which kid from your school that you serve at are you praying for intentionally? Which coworker, which family member, which brother or sister, which aunt, which uncle? We could do the whole list. Every relationship has a potential. Who are you praying for, pleading with God? like that centurion, like Esther, for their salvation. Our good and gracious king says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And so we might ask, what are you practically trusting the Lord to do in your life? Like, where are you resting in Christ today? Like, what is the story of your life telling? For Esther, for that centurion, and for all who believe in Jesus and put their trust in him, it's a beautiful story. There's a song out there. We'll do it here eventually. It's called The Story I'll Tell. And it says this, this very song. You know what the story of your life is meant to tell? Is that my God did not fail. It's that my God has won. It's that Jesus has conquered. And in him, we're no longer slaves, man. We're no longer slaves to the world. We're no longer slaves to the flesh. We no longer need to walk in the way of fear. But we're set free to walk in the way of faith. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of humility. It's the way of self-forgetfulness. It's the way of love. And perfect love, here's the good news for us. Here's what it does. Perfect love, it's 1 John 4.18. Perfect love casts out fear. And that's why we stand, not on the shifting sand of our faith, of our experience, We stand on His grace because His grace changes everything and that everything starts with us. That's our prayer for a church here in Columbia, here in Lexington, Irmo, the Midlands, wherever we are, the crossroads of everywhere and nowhere at the same time, it feels like sometimes. That we would be a church, that we'd be a people who stand on the grace of God and we stand on Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for loving us even when we're unlovable. Lord, your word says that when we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still a mess, still covered in our own mess. Andrew prayed earlier how we how we still walk around in our in our garments, our filthy garments. Lord, there was a season in Esther where Mordecai was walking in. And, and sackcloth and ashes. At the end of this chapter, I know we didn't get there, but at the end of this chapter, we see him walking out in royal robes. 
Lord, that's your vision for your people. Take away the sackcloth. Take away the ashes. Lord, let us be a people who rejoice in hope, who are patient in tribulation, and who are constant in prayer. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.